Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. As Danny Tanner once asked, am I the raddest, baddest dad a kid ever had? Rest in peace, Bob. The lead starts right now. The Omicron impact, more and more hospitals reaching critical capacity as New York COVID cases skyrocket, and the variant is disrupting the most important parts of society. Horror in the Bronx, at least eight kids among the 17 killed in the deadliest fire New York City has seen in decades, and now questions about how a door malfunctioning might have made matters even worse. One point for Novak Djokovic, a judge rules in the tennis star's favor, but the match is not over. Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today in our health lead. Nearly a quarter of hospitals across America are more strained than ever as the Omicron variant is pushing the U.S. healthcare system to the brink. According to the latest data, more than 141,000 people are currently hospitalized with COVID. That's just below last year's all-time high. At least 90% of those or more are unvaccinated. And according to the CDC, in some hospitals, up to 40% of patients tested positive after being admitted for something else. Hospitalizations among children, meanwhile, are at their highest level, with the vast majority also unvaccinated, according to the CDC. As CNN's Alexandra Field now reports, health experts are urging patients, I'm sorry, urging parents to vaccinate their children if the kids meet the age requirements, as multiple school districts across the country are still grappling with reopening from the holiday break. Parents are outraged and they are making uh, their outrage known uh, to the teachers union. This is a very different dynamic uh, than ever before. Tensions mounting in Chicago, more than 340,000 students missing school for a fourth day, their teachers refusing to return to the classroom. We're very frustrated that there are no public health leaders standing up and saying that we should be moving to a remote learning environment especially for a district of this size. In Los Angeles, students are due back in school in person tomorrow, with widespread testing turning up some 50,000 positive cases in the district. Metro Atlanta schools also returning to in-person learning after almost a week of going remote. The largest district in the nation, New York City schools, started the new year in person. So far, just one single classroom in partial quarantine. I think at this point, there's really no good explanation for having remote schools. And a more dire situation for hospitals. Nearly one in four nationwide now reporting critical staffing shortages, federal data shows, while COVID hospitalization numbers near the pandemic's all-time high. Among unvaccinated people and among unboosted high-risk people, it is putting a big strain. And given how much infection there is, uh, our hospitals really are at the brink right now. For children, average daily hospitalizations are well above any pandemic peak we've seen before. For those children who are not eligible for vaccination, we do know that they are most likely to get sick with COVID if their family members aren't vaccinated. Amid a shortage of COVID tests nationwide, some testing labs report they're already overburdened 
burdened. Universities from Washington State to North Carolina prioritizing who gets tested. If you look what's happening across the East Coast right now, New York City, Washington, D.C., Maryland, probably Florida as well have already peaked, maybe Delaware and Rhode Island. You're going to start to see that in the statistics this week. You're going to start to see those curves, those epidemic curves bend down. You're already seeing that in New York City and Washington, D.C. The risk right now is to the Midwest where you have rising infection. As for the much-anticipated at-home test kits promised by the Biden administration, an update from the White House today, which says the first kits will arrive for distribution early next week. And then at some point later this month, you can go online and order your kit. More details apparently to come on that in the coming days. Of course, none of it can come soon enough, Jake. All right, Alexander Field, thanks so much. Let's, uh, thank you so much. Let's bring in uh, CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, so nearly a quarter of all hospitals reported critical staffing shortages over the weekend. You were in a hospital today. Tell us what it's like on the ground. Yeah, I was in a hospital today for my my other job, you know, sort of taking care of patients. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very uh, busy, Jake. I mean, you know, the busiest sort of uh, number of COVID patients in terms of COVID patients last year were at the peak of uh, the beginning of this year was 162 patients. Uh, we're a 600 bed hospital roughly. Uh, we're about 258 now uh, patients uh, with COVID in the hospital. So about 40% roughly of all the patients in the hospital uh, have been diagnosed with COVID. There's a uh, hundred patients maybe in the ER that are waiting for beds at any given time. So it's it's really busy. And on top of that, as you mentioned, uh, you know there's a lot of healthcare workers who are out. They get they get a positive test and they're out. So at any given time, 20. 25% of healthcare workers are out. So busy in terms of overall patient uh, influx, but fewer staff at the same time. So it's, it's, it's a tough situation. I'll just tell you as well, Jake, you know, I, I perform neurosurgical operations. They have to have a meeting basically every day before the operating room to determine what is considered urgent or emergent because we're cutting down on the number of elective cases we can do in the midst of all this. And we know the overwhelming majority of people hospitalized with COVID are unvaccinated folks. What do vaccinated Americans need to take away from this? Well, I, the, the, the reality is that even uh, if you're vaccinated, what is happening right now in hospitals uh, will affect you. Because if you do go into the hospital for something totally unrelated to COVID, car accident, stroke, heart attack, whatever it may be, it's harder to get, uh, you know, to actually get a hospital bed. Uh, hospitals at times go on diversion, meaning that uh, ambulances are calling into these hospitals saying, hey, we need to bring in a patient for X, Y, or Z. And hospitals may say, we don't have space now. You have to go somewhere that's further away. Or sometimes they'll take patients that are already in the hospital and move them to other hospitals to make room for uh, a surge of patients. So it's, it's, it's challenging. I think hospitals really, in terms of the numbers, the dynamics of what's happening in the hospital, really reflect the truest sort of measure of what's happening in, in, in the society at any given time. You and I have talked about how uh, the case numbers aren't really as significant as hospitalizations, because what's important is how sick people are right. getting. Uh, so hospitalizations and deaths, much more important numbers uh, than uh, cases. And there's still we're still over a thousand deaths a day from COVID. Over the weekend, uh, the CDC director, uh, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, was asked how many people are in the hospital for COVID versus how many people are in the hospital with COVID, meaning they're there for some other reason, and it's also true that they have COVID. Here's what she had to say. 
In some hospitals that we've talked to, up to 40% of the patients who are coming in with COVID are coming in not because they're sick with COVID, but because they're coming in with something else and have uh, had to COVID or the Omicron variant detected. Right. So the hospitals are still stretched thin because of this, so I'm not trying to take away from that. But if 40% in some hospitals, 40% of the people who have COVID don't necessarily have problematic COVID. They're there because they got in a car accident. They get, they're there because, right. um, you know, they, they bump their head. And they're being included as in the hospital with COVID. That number seems kind of misleading. Yeah, I agree, Jake. It surprises me that they have not been able to parse out that data more carefully. I think the data that uh, uh, Dr. Olensky is quoting is from New York State, and we've been following that data as well. And I can show you what we've seen, uh, sort of sort of tracks with what she said. But out of all the patients that are in the hospital, about 57%, these are COVID patients, admitted because of or complications from COVID, 43% admitted for other reasons and then diagnosed with COVID. Uh, I think, you know, we, there needs to be transparency about that uh, in terms of for or with COVID. The only thing I will tell you, Jake, I- again, working in the hospital, is that at the time someone is then diagnosed with COVID, even if they didn't come in for that reason, it does take up a, a lot of resources then in terms of infection protocols, personal protective equipment, more testing, all that kind of stuff. So even though that may not have been the initial impetus to bring him in the hospital, it just requires a lot, a lot of energy and resources uh, on behalf of the hospital staff and, and, and the, the testing and all that sort of stuff. So they, we need to get better about being able to see this data. New York State, I think, is one of the few states that's presenting it that way for or with COVID, but other states should follow suit. The American Heart Association, I'm sorry, American Health Association says they have a hard time sort of separating out that data, but clearly New York State's been able to do it. Other states should do it as well. Yeah, we're two years into this, and to, we need the clearest picture possible. If somebody's in the hospital with a broken leg and they also have asymptomatic COVID, yeah. that should not be counted as hospitalized with COVID, clearly. Uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Can a former president be sued by members of Congress? That question about Donald Trump is before a judge right now. And he was a fixture in America's living rooms for years on Full House and America's Funniest Home Videos. Actor and comedian Bob Saget, a prince of a man, passed away suddenly while on tour. Jesse, I believe your job was to clean the fireplace. Special helper, Mike Love, please. My pleasure. In our politics lead, right now a judge is hearing arguments on whether former President Donald Trump can be sued by members of Congress, part of three separate lawsuits from House Democrats and Capitol Capitol Police officers who want to hold Trump and some of his allies accountable for last year's deadly Capitol attack. Lawyers for Trump want the case dismissed. CNN's Ryan Nobles joins us now. And Ryan, the judge's ruling here will be significant no, no matter what he decides. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, Jake, because this is an opportunity or uh, for uh, some uh, folks who were victims of that Capitol insurrection to find accountability through civil litigation. And if for some reason the judge puts a stop to it through this hearing, it would mean that that avenue of finding people accountable uh, would be uh, closed off to them. And right now the judge uh, is continuing this hearing. It's gone on now. They're in their third hour of deliberations. And uh, this is a a series of lawsuits filed against uh, the former President Donald Trump 
Trump and some of his closest associates, including uh, Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama, his son Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and then members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And uh, what uh, the, these groups are uh, contending is that their First Amendment rights protect them from being sued uh, for something having to do with what happened on the January 6th insurrection because their lawsuits are claiming that it was the rhetoric by uh, these individuals and others that in part led to the violence and chaos here on January 6th. Now, uh, this hearing is ongoing so far, Jake. The judge has asked very difficult questions of both the attorneys for both sides of this equation, but his ruling will ultimately be very important because not only will it allow these lawsuits to go forward, but it then opens up the door to depositions and discovery all information that will be of very big interest to the public should the case move forward. And Ryan, separately, uh, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio said last August that he had nothing to hide uh, when the January 6th committee told him to preserve his phone records uh, and said they, they might have questions for him. But now he's, he's singing a different tune. He's telling the committee he will not cooperate with their request for an interview. So, so what happens next? Uh, should Jordan expect a subpoena? Yeah, well, what's interesting in this letter that Jim Jordan sent to the committee that he issued on his Twitter feed late last night is that he never specifically says that he intends to not cooperate with the committee, but he goes through a long list of reasons why he's not going to comply with their requests to submit documents and sit for an interview. So you're right, Jake. The next big question is, how does the committee respond? At this point, they've been reluctant to say that they're willing to take the next step of issuing subpoenas to their fellow members of Congress. They're in a similar situation with Representative Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, who's also resisted their overtures. The committee has said they'll use every tool at their disposal, but issuing a subpoena to another member of Congress is pretty much an unprecedented act. So we'll have to see how the committee responds. We could get more clarity later this week. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Let's discuss. Uh, Anna Navarro, let's start with the January 6th committee. So Jim Jordan, Congressman Jordan, is now the second member of Congress suggesting that he will not uh, submit to an interview request. Uh, Republican Co- uh, Congressman Perry of Pennsylvania did the same last month. This could have major political ramifications if the committee decides to subpoena a fellow member of Congress. Look, I think it's the least shocking news uh, of the month, frankly, that Jim Jordan is not going to cooperate. And it goes to the, to, the, to the purpose of Republicans wanting to make January 6th out to be just another day and putting a lot of energy into uh, there not being accountability, they're not being truth-seeking, and they're not being credibility to the January 6th committee, despite the fact that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, two Republicans, are members of that committee. Because if they seek accountability, if they strongly and vociferously condemn what happened on January 6th, if they seek the truth, it will invariably put them on a crash course against dear leader Donald Trump. And that's, that's something that they can't figure out how to do, how to mark January 6th, tell the truth, seek accountability, and at the same time, not poke the bear and point the blame at the person at the top who was inciting what happened on January 6th. All right, Charles, you're a Republican strategist. What would you advise uh, Jordan and Perry to do? Um, would you suggest that they proceed as they're doing and risk getting subpoenas? 
Well, you know, I mean, if you look at the letter that Jim Jordan put out, he lays out the reasons for why he is not going to get himself involved with the committee. I mean, he says it's unbalanced. He says he doesn't believe it's objective, and he lists reasons why. And I think the fact that the committee spokesperson immediately came out and said that the Trump team is what got to Jim Jordan, and that's why he's not um, going to cooperate with the committee, goes to show that it is unbalanced. And I think, you know, I have to disagree with Anna. I think people want to get to the bottom of this. I believe they want credibility in this investigation, but they don't want to partake in a panel and a commission that they feel is purely partisan and it's not actually going to try to get to the bottom of what actually happened in this midterm year purely partisan when you have liz cheney who until a year ago was part of republican leadership and who i suspect you would agree has been consistently one of the most conservative republicans in congress well, what I'll say is that Jim Jordan's name was put forth as a member of the commission and he was rejected. And so I don't think anyone expected him to cooperate with them after his membership was rejected. Uh, well, his membership was rejected because it was a conflict of interest. His membership was rejected because he was in constant contact with the Trump White House, as we have seen. So it's very difficult for him to be imbalanced, to be to be uh, uh, unbiased on that committee when he was part of the people that needs to be investigated because he's got material knowledge. I think his membership was rejected because the leadership wanted Republicans who were going to go along with the narrative that they wanted to put forth. I think that's more of the reason of why his membership was rejected in that committee. Let me uh, let me move into a, a new topic. In this midterm year, President Biden does seem to be taking on a new, uh, more partisan tone. In two big speeches now, we've heard him specifically go after Republicans. Take a listen. Big lie being told by the former president and many Republicans who fear his wrath is that the insurrection in this country actually took place on Election Day. They want to talk down the recovery because they voted against the legislation that made it happen. They voted against the tax cuts for middle class families. They voted against the funds we needed to reopen our schools. So, Anna, the, the, the unity tone that Biden uh, had during the election 2020 obviously helped get him elected. Does it make sense for him to be more partisan now because it's a, it's a midterm election year? Well, I, th- you know, I think he began being very, uh, very partisan on January 6th. And I think part of it is the frustration that Republicans want to pretend January 6th was just another day. I have seen elected Republicans this week, uh, you know, arguing that it should not be a day in infamy in the same way that we mark uh, Pearl Harbor Day and that we mark uh, September 11th. I've seen Ted Cruz bend himself into pretzel shapes and serve as a sweep for and as a broom for Tucker Carlson trying to apologize for using the word terrorist to describe the terrorists who breached the U.S. Capitol. And so because that's the kind of behavior that Republicans are engaging in, I think Joe Biden, despite his bipartisan nature, it has had to call this out. But I think you're still going to see Joe Biden try to reach out because it's his nature and you're not going to change the man at this time and at this age. And Charles, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, uh, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy gave an interview to Breitbart in which he suggested he was going to kick three Democrats uh, off committees if Republicans take back the House. Uh, uh, Adam Schiff, um, Eric Swalwell and Ilhan Omar. This is in retaliation for Democrats uh, removing Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, from their committees as punishment for 
for their behaviors, for, for bigoted conspiracy theories Green has pushed forward, and, and uh, Gosar, obviously, with that video that depicted AOC being killed. Um, is that uh, the right move for McCarthy, you think? Uh, or would it be better to, to pull back from, from where we are right now? Well, I don't think there's really any pulling back. I mean, I think Democrats have shown that they're going to pull out all the stops when they're in power. And I think Republicans are going to do the same. And to the question you answered before, I believe that Joe Biden is looking to attack Republicans heading into this this uh, midterm election, because that is really all that unifi- unifies the Democratic base. And that's all that they have to put forth. I mean, you the, the pandemic is still ravaging through the country. Um, the economic gains that people have made have been lost through inflation. And Build Back Better turned out to be a flop. And so I think the best thing that he has is to attack Republicans. That's all they have right now. Charles Blaine and Anna Navarro, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Good to see both of you. Tennis superstar Novak Djokovic is freed by the Australian government. Now he's vowing to play. That story's next. Plus, new clues about the sudden death of one of America's favorite TV dads, comedian Bob Saget. I have a date Free Novak, they're chanting in our sports lead today. Hordes of supporters on the streets of Melbourne, Australia, celebrating a big win for unvaccinated tennis superstar Novak Djokovic. Today, a judge quashed the government's attempt to cancel Djokovic's visa because of his unvaccinated status, allowing the world's top top men's player to stay in the country and play, compete in the Australian Open. But as CNN's Phil Black reports for us now, there is still a chance that Djokovic will be deported. A big win for tennis star Novak Djokovic, this time in a court of law. Tweeting Monday, he's pleased and grateful that a judge overturned the Australian government's decision to cancel his visa, and he still wants to compete in the upcoming Open. His supporters celebrating the judge's decision, some blocking traffic in Melbourne, others scuffling with police who used pepper spray on overzealous fans. Djokovic's Australian drama started fueling strong emotions last week when the unvaccinated player announced he'd been granted an exemption to play in the tournament. But when he arrived in Australia Wednesday, officials said his visa had been cancelled for failing to meet entry requirements. Authorities moved him to his Melbourne hotel turned temporary immigration detention centre where he waited for days while his lawyers went to work. Finally, Monday, a Melbourne judge ordered Djokovic's release and overturned his visa cancellation, ruling border officials hadn't treated him fairly. Djokovic's father hailed the ruling. They waited for him at the airport. They had no right. They just took away all of his rights. This press conference is adjourned. His brother dodged questions about Djokovic's public appearances after testing positive for COVID in December. Social media photos from the day and day after show him at three events, maskless and surrounded by people. A court affidavit reveals Djokovic knew he was infected when he attended. It's that positive test result, his lawyers say, is the basis for a medical exemption he was granted to play in Australia. But the Australian government maintains a previous COVID infection isn't grounds for any exemption from its entry vaccine requirements. Now the saga may continue. Australia's immigration minister still has the power to cancel Djokovic's visa. As Serbia's tennis star fights to play for a record 21st Grand Slam, his legacy on and off the court hangs in the balance. 
Jake, Djokovic can't relax, not yet. He can't be sure that he's going to get to walk out here and play on centre court next week. Not until the Australian government announces that it accepts that court decision. Until then, it is possible at any moment the country's immigration minister could use his own powers to again overturn, cancel Djokovic's visa. He says he's considering the matter. If he does that, he won't just be deported. He will also be banned from entering the country for three years. Jake. All right, Phil Black in Melbourne, Australia, thank you so much. In our pop culture lead today, shock and sadness at the sudden loss of one of America's favorite TV dads, comedian Bob Saget. A little wax in his ear, but uh, not bad. Okay, let's move on. Best known for his role as squeaky clean single father Danny Tanner in ABC's Full House, Saget went on to host America's Funniest Home Videos for several years. Off screen, Saget was known as one of the most irreverent comedians in Hollywood, quick with the one-liner, sometimes filthy, always funny. Last summer, we interviewed Saget right here on The Lead, and he talked about how his comedy routine had recently changed. I'm out doing stand-up again. I'm finding myself being more like Danny Tanner. (laughs) (laughs) I'm cleaning things. I'm still wanting to hug people again. My stand-up now, it's it's really wonderful to get out and do it again, and it's different than it was. It's not as... um, I don't want to say, I don't think it's as gritty as it was. It's more adolescent, but it's more stories of what I've been through, my family, my kids, my parents, and what we're all going through, which is a joy to be able to make people laugh again. And making people laugh was one of the last things Saget did. He was found Sunday in his Orlando area hotel room a day after doing a comedy show there. The cause It's still a mystery, but the medical examiner today said there was no evidence of drug use or foul play. All day, friends and co-stars have been remembering Saget. Dave Coulier, who played Uncle Joey on Full House, tweeted, I'll never let go, brother. John Stamos, who played Cool Uncle Jesse, tweeted, I am broken. I am gutted. I am in complete shock. Growing up in Philadelphia, Saget's mom and my mom worked together at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. For years, in the 70s and 80s, I would hear stories about how successful Dolly's boy Bob was going to be. Dolly Saget ended up being 100% right. I brought that up during our interview in July, and of course, he turned it into a joke. I'm sorry that you had to hear that I was going to be a big star from your mother when I literally was living in a single apartment in West L.A. <laughs> Bob Saget was only 65 years old to his friends, his wife Kelly, his three daughters. Our deepest condolences on the loss of such a warm and special guy. May his memory be a blessing. Coming up on The Lead, new questions about the Bronx apartment building where nine children were killed in a fire. Stay with us. In our national lead, an unspeakable tragedy is how New York City Mayor Eric Adams describes that horrific fire in the Bronx. We now know 17 people were killed, not 19 as previously thought, 17, eight of the victims, eight were children. The fire commissioner saying that a space heater was to blame. Today, more survivors told their stories of how they escaped. One woman telling CNN she lived on the same third floor level where the fire started. But by the time I tried to go get towels, the smoke was in. It was coming down the stairs. So we ran to the back. And next thing I know, I heard the firemen breaking my door. They were breaking my door and things that came in to get me, my granddaughter and my son. And that window right there, by the trees right there, that's the window that I climbed out of. 
CNN Shimon Prokopes is live for us in New York City. Shimon, so many questions about a, a door that was supposed to automatically close. Yeah, this is the apartment door, Jake, where the fire started. The family racing out of that apartment as flames started and that hot smoke started going through the apartment. When they left, that door remained open. The mayor saying perhaps some kind of malfunction. But now what he's talking about is he wants to institute an education campaign for schools all across the city, reminding kids to close the door if there's a fire. Here's what he said about that today. Close the door. Close the door. That was embedded in my head as a child watching the commercials over and over again. We're going to send out communications to all of our schools and state that we want our children to receive the same level of reinforcement. Muscle memory is everything. And if we can drill that in, uh, we can save lives by closing the doors. And... And Jake, also the stairwell doors, some of those doors were left open, which then allowed the smoke to even go further up into the building, reaching every floor of this building all the way up to the 19th floor, Jake. All right, Shimon Prokopes, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in New York City Council Member Oswald Feliz. He represents the area of the Bronx where this tragic fire happened. Um, Councilman, thank you so much for joining us. There are two doors in question here. You heard uh, Shimon talking about the doors that are by law required to automatically close in hallways and the fire commissioner confirmed today that at least one of those malfunctioned. Take a listen. The stairwell was very dangerous as the door was left open. Uh, some of the floors, certainly on 15, the door was open from the stair to the hall and the 15th floor became quite untenable. Uh, we do recommend in high-rise fireproof buildings that people should shelter in place and it's safer to be in your apartment than to venture out and try to get down the stairs. From what you've heard, uh, is that malfunctioning door one of the main reasons there were so many deaths? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, we're still waiting for the investigation to, the, the investigations to be completed, but it seems like the malfunctioning uh, self-closing door was the big factor uh, that played a big role in terms of uh, the smoke inundating the entire building uh, in matters of seconds. So the other door in question uh, is from the unit where the fire started. Uh, That door was also left open, allowing the fire to spread. The mayor said he didn't want to add further trauma on that family after they escaped a burning apartment, but he's pushing that there's a lesson to be learned about closing a door Um, With so many families in your area who live in similar high-rise buildings, do you agree? Uh, That's correct. But I think another issue is that we need to investigate is if that door was, in fact, a self-closing door, why did it malfunction? Um, We need to strengthen our our fire safety code, um, and we also need to to improve our process of not only investigating violations of the housing maintenance code, but also curing uh, any violations. Uh, we shouldn't have to wait for a tragedy to happen uh, for us to take action. So the fire, we're told, was started by a space heater malfunctioning. Um, people use space heaters if their apartments are not warm enough. This was Section 8 housing, public housing in New York. Is it, you know, uh, why did these people need to have a space heater to begin with? I mean, were they, did, they, did the heating in that apartment not work? 
Yeah, that is another question that we're currently investigating. Uh, we've spoken with a lot of uh, tenants. They've said that the landlord didn't, didn't, didn't in fact, uh, provide heating. But the big question was whether uh, the heating was enough. Why did uh, tenants need to, need to obtain these uh, space heaters in addition to the heating already provided uh, by the landlord? So that is another question that we're currently uh, investigating um, and that we're hoping to um, resolve. Yeah, you're the, you're the councilman. I mean, have you talked to the landlord? Have you talked to people in the, in the apartment building? Because, I mean, obviously, this is Section 8 housing. If the people didn't have heat during a very cold winter, that could have contributed to this tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, we're at, we actually looked at the HPD violations website. We did see a few notices of violations sent out to the landlord. Um, but this is a large building where uh, we did see about more or less five to ten uh, notices of violations sent to the landlord. I'll have to confirm the number. But it did seem like, um, again, maybe they did provide heating, but the big question was whether it was enough to keep the, the uh, apartment in a habitable condition or at least in a comfortable uh, condition for the tenants not to need additional heating um, in order to survive this winter. The mayor mentioned a flood of donations coming in to help the families that survived and are now displaced. What is the plan to make sure those donations get to the to get to the right people? Yeah, absolutely. We actually spent the entire day and night yesterday uh, making sure that every tenant that was affected uh, obtained housing. Um, most of the families now have uh, at least temporary housing. Um, we also obtained uh, clothing and food. Um, and we're, we're currently stationed at Moreau College um, where we're helping uh, families that are exiting the hospital uh, due to injuries uh, obtain uh, st uh, temporary housing until the building is in a habitable condition again. Uh, but we're also expecting uh, the tenants from the upper floors to have uh, hopeful access to the apartments uh, soon. Um, the smoke uh, condition um, should hopefully be remedied pretty quickly as opposed to the third floor affected by the fire. New York City Councilman Oswald Feliz, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Increasingly violent clashes between protesters and government forces in Kazakhstan. Now the country's leader is defending a gruesome order for security forces to kill protesters without warning. Stay with us. In our world, lead the rising death toll and astonishing numbers of arrests in the wake of a heavy-handed government crackdown on protests in Kazakhstan. This follows days of violent clashes between government forces and crowds that poured into the streets of Kazakhstan's major cities to protest a sharp rise in fuel prices. Russia, which borders that country, sent troops in after Kazakhstan's leader appealed for help. CNN's Fred Plykin is along Kazakhstan's border with Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Fred, Kazakhstan's leader ordered security forces to kill without warning. Uh, he claims the unrest was yeah. an attempted coup. That's exactly what he said. He also said that uh, he believed that the country was under what he called a full-blown terrorist attack, as the president said and other senior Kazakh officials have said as well. They also say that some of the people who participated in those protests, as they put it, were foreign trained and possibly steered from abroad as well. Now, so far, the Kazakh government has not provided any sort of evidence uh, to uh, for those uh, claims. However, it does certainly appear as though, Jake, uh, that crackdown really is very much going on in many ways, even escalating as well. The latest numbers that we have from Kazakhstan is that around 8,000 people have so far been detained and the death toll also 
rising very steeply. 164 now confirmed killed, and over 100 of those killed are in one single city. That's the city of Almaty, uh, Jake, and that's really that city where a lot of those very troubling videos came from as those protests were uh, unfolding as well, where you had uh, troops moving through the streets there, apparently opening fire on civilians as well. The latest that we have from the ground right now is that apparently things have somewhat calmed down. There was a day of mourning as well. The internet was restored at least for an hour or so. However, the Kazakh authorities are saying that one of the main reasons that they are now in control is, of course, the fact that they have foreign troops and the largest contingent of those foreign troops, of course, comes from Russia and Vladimir Putin, Jake. Hmm. And Vladimir Putin sent Russian troops to help put down the protests. What is he saying now about how long these Russian Hmm. troops will stay? Yeah. yeah, that's, of course, one of the things that the State Department uh, had criticized. Secretary of State uh, uh, Anthony Blinken, he was, of course, came out and said that uh, some uh, nations find that when they ask Russian troops to come in, it takes a while for them to get out. The Russians, of course, rejecting that. The Russians are saying those troops are not going to stay any longer uh, than necessary. The Kazakh government said the same thing uh, as well. However, the Russians also acknowledging that that big presence they say was necessary. They managed to get that presence in there very quickly. And I think, Jake, one of the things that we are seeing is that through that, uh, through those troops that Vladimir Putin was able to put on the ground very quickly there in Kazakhstan, he certainly increased his influence in a really big way in this entire region. There's a lot of other re- leaders here in this region in Central Asia who fear that there could also be protests. And they now feel that the go-to person, if they need help, is going to believe Vladimir Putin with all the consequences, of course, uh, some of them being that bloody crackdown that we saw in Kazakhstan over the past couple of days, Jake. All right, Frederick Plekin, thanks so much. The United States and Russia are wrapping up key talks right now about Ukraine. Was it enough to deter Putin from sparking an invasion and a war? The State Department spokesman will join us next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the cost of the climate crisis. Billion-dollar disasters reaching record levels. And it's not just the price tag. New insight into just how bad climate change is getting. Plus, red alert, the Omicron variant taking a major toll on life-saving services such as police and fire departments. We'll talk to one big city police chief who recently battled COVID himself. And leading this hour, critical talks in the all-out push to stop an invasion and potential war. U.S. and Russian negotiators meeting today as Vladimir Putin's army readies to try to annex yet another part of Ukraine militarily. We'll talk live with the State Department spokesman Ned Price in a minute. But first, let's get every angle of the story covered from Moscow to Geneva, where the talks took place uh, today. Let's start with CNN's Alex Marquardt, who is in Switzerland, where a breakthrough seems less and less likely. High stakes discussions to pressure Russia not to invade Ukraine getting underway in Geneva today. After almost eight hours of talks, the U.S. couldn't answer a key question, whether Russia intends to draw down their 100,000 troops that are menacingly positioned all along Ukraine's borders. The situation in Ukraine... The Russian side warned of growing risks of confrontation, but told reporters here in Geneva that Russia has no plans to attack Ukraine, while complaining that their demand that Ukraine never join NATO is falling on deaf ears. We underscore that for us it's absolutely mandatory uh, to make sure that Ukraine never, never ever becomes member of NATO. On Sunday, Secretary of State Tony Blinken told Jake that is not on the table and Russia has a clear choice. There are two paths uh, before us. There's a path of, of dialogue and diplomacy to try to resolve uh, 
some of these differences and, and avoid a confrontation. Uh, the other path is, um, is confrontation and massive consequences for Russia if it renews its aggression uh, on Ukraine. Those consequences would be unprecedented, expansive economic sanctions on Russia, as well as more military assets moving into Eastern Europe and Ukraine. While both sides emerged without any real victory, discussions did move forward on other issues, including the positioning of missiles that point at each other and how the two countries could carry out military exercises with more transparency. But it remains to be seen whether Russia is taking this diplomacy seriously or intends to invade Ukraine regardless. We have to be prepared that Russia was using this week of diplomacy and especially the meeting with the United States as a pretext for conflict, that they very well may walk away from these discussions and declare that diplomacy has failed. And Jake, we have just learned from numerous sources speaking to our colleagues, Kylie Atwood and Natasha Bertrand and myself, that in the lead up to these talks just a few weeks ago in late December, the Biden administration released another $200 million in military aid for Ukraine. Of course, that could go way up if Russia decides to invade Ukraine. For now, the focus is on diplomacy and the talks are moving from here in Geneva to Brussels and Vienna to include more countries, including talks with NATO on Wednesday. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt in Geneva for us. Thank you so much. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us in Moscow. And Matthew, Russia has not taken any steps to de-escalate the situation leading up to the talks. What does the Kremlin have to say about this week's negotiations? Well, I mean, it's playing down. Uh, frankly, Jake, any expectations of a really solid breakthrough when it comes to this whole raft of negotiations that's being engaged in uh, over the course of this week. It, it, it says it's got these red lines that it's put out there. It's, it's sort of um, extraordinary demands, first of all, for NATO not to be expanded any further uh, towards it, its borders. It sees that as a national security threat, but also for military activity to be scaled back inside countries that join NATO after the fall of the Soviet Union. Obviously, I mean, these are the, uh, the kinds of demands that are characterized as non-starters, not just by U.S. officials, but by Western officials, NATO officials um, in general. And so it's pretty clear at this stage, after this first day of negotiations, uh, this time taking place in Geneva, that Russia is not going to get that. But you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that's a, a, a green light for, for conflict in Ukraine. There are other things that Russia could get. For instance, I, I think it was mentioned in that, in that report there, there's the possibility of a compromise from the US on reviving a treaty on deploying nuclear missiles inside the continent of Europe. There's talks about the possibility of scaling back NATO military exercises and more transparency when it comes to the NATO military alliance and Russia, more, more, more discussions about that. There's also that diplomatic issue. Remember, over the past couple of years, Russia and the United States have really you know, expelled each other's diplomats. And, and both countries want that diplomatic relationship to be reset so they can get a sort of proper number of diplomats working in each other's uh, respective embassies again. And so it's not going to get the big maximalist demands that it's been asking for, but it might get something less than that. And that would be an achievement. Matthew Chance in Moscow, thanks so much. Joining us to discuss, State Department spokesman Ned Price. Um, Ned, thanks for joining us. There were no breakthroughs today, we're told. Does the U.S. feel any progress was made? Were these talks worth the time? Well, Jake, there were no break breakthroughs, but neither did we intend for there to be any breakthroughs. This was our first opportunity to test the proposition 
that the Russians are serious and steadfast and sincere as we are uh, when it comes to the diplomatic path. You heard from Secretary Blinken yesterday. You've heard from President Biden uh, that insofar as we consider it, there are two paths that Moscow can choose to walk. The path of diplomacy, Mm -hmm. the path of dialogue that could, in our minds, have the potential to lead to de-escalation, or the path of defense and deterrence. So even today, as we were starting down this path of diplomacy and dialogue to see if we can achieve progress through uh, reciprocal measures with the Russian Federation, we're continuing to work closely with our allies with our partners. Uh, That includes NATO. That includes our European allies. That includes our Ukrainian partners on this path of defense Mm -hmm. and deterrence if Moscow makes clear uh, that they have no interest in this diplomacy. What I can say about today, it was substantive. It was frank. It was candid. It was useful. It was also eight hours. uh, So it wasn't for uh, the faint of heart. We are very fortunate to have representing us Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman, uh, who, of course, is no stranger to the Russians. She's no stranger uh, to some of the most pressing challenges we have faced and we face now. That includes Iran, North Korea, and just about everything else under the sun. Right. Ned, so Secretary of State Blinken uh, told me that Russia has a gun to Ukraine's head. Um, Why wasn't Ukraine at the table today? It's fate is what's being discussed. Jake, there is a principle that for us is sacrosanct. Nothing about them without them. Nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. As you know, President Biden has now had a couple opportunities to speak to President Zelensky. Secretary Blinken has had a couple opportunities to speak to President Zelensky and to the Ukrainian foreign minister, Foreign Minister Kuleba. Uh, We have made very clear Uh, that we are going to continue to coordinate closely, not only with Ukraine, but also with our European allies uh, and with uh, NATO. And so Ukraine will be at the table uh, when the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, uh, meets later this week. But we were also very clear uh, that today's discussions uh, would not broach Uh, issues that pertain to exclusively Ukraine or NATO or Europe. This was a bilateral channel, a bilateral channel between the United States and Europe, uh, between the United States and Russia, uh, that was set up months ago. We've met twice with the Russians in this context already. Uh, We made clear that there may be areas in uh, in terms of strategic stability uh, where we can achieve these so-called reciprocal measures, uh, where the Russians take steps that redound positively to our collective security, to the to the security of the United States, to the security of Europe, to the security of uh, Ukraine and everyone else, uh, and steps that might help to address what the Russians have stated are their own concerns. Uh, But we are very steadfast in this principle, nothing about them without them. That's why we've undertaken more than 100 engagements, many of those engagements taking part uh, from the Department of State, uh, meetings, phone calls, uh, teleconferences, video conferences with our European allies uh, and our partners, of course, to include the Ukrainians. One of the things that I'm sure you've heard from the Ukrainians has to do with Nord Stream 2. That's, of course, the controversial pipeline designed to bring Russian natural gas to Western Europe. Now, as you know, Republican Senator Ted Cruz is pushing for a vote this week for sanctions against Nord Stream 2, saying it will give Moscow too much power. Ukrainian President Zelensky supports Cruz's bill. Um, Our sources tell us that the State Department is actually lobbying Democrats to not support the Cruz legislation. Why not? So, Jake, we have been very clear that one of the most effective, if not the most effective tools we have in our arsenal uh, when it comes to Russian aggression, and that includes energy coercion, is transatlantic unity, uh, is having a united 
front with our European allies, with our European partners as well, uh, against Russia. And that's what we've been able to put together uh, in recent months. We do not wish to do anything that would undermine uh, that most potent uh, tool in our arsenal when it comes to Russia's potential use of energy as a weapon. And of course, we are concerned that this amendment uh, would do just that. Uh, So we're very clear that we want to take steps to buttress uh, that transatlantic unity. And let me make one other point here, Jake. Uh, The Russian, the Germans, excuse me, have spoken uh, in no uncertain terms uh, that if Russia were to move forward with continued aggression against Ukraine, uh, it would be an extraordinarily unlikely prospect uh, that gas would flow through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. There is a lot of talk in this town and elsewhere that Nord Stream 2 is a source of leverage for Vladimir Putin. Actually, the opposite is in fact true. Uh, Nord Stream 2, there is no gas running in it right now. Uh, If the Russians uh, want to see, uh, if they want to achieve their ends with Nord Stream 2, uh, they know that invading Ukraine, continuing to aggress against Ukraine is not the way to do that. And in fact, they know uh, that they must not do so. And they've heard that very clearly uh, from the Germans, from the United States, and clearly from the transatlantic community, uh, a community that uh, we have spoken with one voice uh, in recent weeks and recent months. But Ned, Ukraine wants the sanctions on Nord Stream 2. Why why does their concern uh, matter so little? Oh, uh, Jake, I don't want to lend the impression that the that any Ukrainian concern uh, isn't a concern to us. Uh, Ukraine's energy independence and energy security is a paramount concern for us. That is why we have worked concertedly with our Ukrainian partners, with our German allies uh, to provide a green climate fund for Ukraine to ensure that the transit fees uh, that Nord Stream 2 would otherwise deprive them of continue. We have taken a number of other steps to help Ukraine with this energy transition. Uh, this is These are steps that are aimed not only at the near term, but also at the long term, longer term, over the coming uh, years and well beyond, to make Ukraine much less dependent uh, on flows of, uh, of, uh, of energy, including Russian gas through Ukrainian territory. That's our ultimate goal. That's what we're working very closely with Ukraine, Germany, and others on, and we've made tremendous progress on that. All right, State Department spokesman Ned Price, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Life interrupted, not an enough EMTs to respond to non-urgent 911 calls, kids taking city buses instead of school buses because so many school bus drivers are out sick. A look at the ripple effect of Omicron. Then it is the $750 billion prediction no one wanted to come true. The price tag of climate change. Stay with us. And our health lead, teachers, police officers, hospital staff, airport officials, just some of the 700,000 Americans testing positive for COVID every single day, meaning millions are stuck at home sick, isolating, quarantining. As CNN's Nick Watt reports, that is fueling major disruptions to everyday life and the economy. In Los Angeles, more than 60,000 school staff and students have tested positive in the run-up to reopening. In New York... Trash lies uncollected, three subway lines are closed, so many city staff are out sick. Across Colorado, so many EMTs are out, they're now turning away some non-urgent callers. Upwards of 5 million Americans will be stuck at home over the coming days, says one economist, all down to the Omicron tsunami. 
Nearly a quarter of American hospitals are now reporting a critical staff shortage with nearly 140,000 patients in those hospitals fighting COVID-19. Much of our hospital workforce is getting knocked out at home with symptomatic COVID. Some overwhelmed testing labs now forced to prioritize results just for the symptomatic. Diagnostic testing is in shambles. And so when you add up all of that together, we've got a very serious situation facing our our nation this month. This country is now averaging a stunning 700,000 plus new COVID-19 infections every day, an all-time high and still rising. Thousands of schools didn't open last week after winter break due to COVID. It was a staff shortage that led to the closure. Others closed to slow the spread elsewhere, strikes because teachers want more safety measures. I agree that the best learning happens in schools, but I don't feel safe at work right now. One North Carolina district now telling some high schoolers to ride city buses because they're out of drivers for the yellow ones. Meantime, city bus services slashed in the likes of Washington, D.C. and Portland, Oregon. Cruises also being cancelled and more than 25,000 flights cancelled since Christmas due to weather and Omicron. How long might all this last? Well, Alaska Airlines has cut 10% of its flights through the end of January. Now, some experts are saying that they think that the Omicron surge may have peaked in certain areas, the Northeast, for example, but that is not yet a consensus view. We just don't know. The only way we will know is with more testing. And of course, testing is also snowed under by the Omicron surge. Here in Los Angeles, county officials now talking about opening new testing sites in libraries and drafting in, quote, disaster service workers. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's talk about this with Baltimore Police Commissioner Michael Harrison. Commissioner Harrison, first of all, we should know you tested positive a couple of weeks ago. How are you feeling? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm feeling great, Jake. Uh, My family traveled to our home city of New Orleans over the Christmas holidays. And on the day we were supposed to return uh, on the 28th, I believe, uh, 27th, I began to feel symptoms and got tested the next day and tested positive. Now, my symptoms, my wife tested positive also, but our symptoms were uh, very mild, only for about three or four days. Uh, And then we began to recover really quickly. And then I, of course, worked remotely the next week and stayed home uh, as a precaution and then went back to work this past Monday. Feeling great now, no, no residue, no, no lasting side effects, uh, but thank you. Last week, your department spokeswoman said that more than 300 Baltimore police officers and other employees were quarantined because of COVID. That's, that's roughly 12% of your force. How has that impacted uh, your department and its ability to keep the citizens of Baltimore safe? Well, it, it, the number is different every day. As of today, it was 382 members quarantined, uh, 317 actually positive with uh, 65 cases still pending. Uh, the results, we have to adjust staffing, manpower. We have to adjust it both in uniform services and in, in detectives t- to put them back in uniform to make sure that it doesn't have a negative impact on our ability to respond to 911 calls, violent crime. We have to make sure we can still investigate and get those investigations underway and and keep those investigations moving forward. So it has affected us, but it has not come to a 911 crisis as of yet. It is costing us a lot of overtime, 
uh, because we have to make so many moves to make sure that it doesn't negatively affect us. So we're staying ahead of it, but it is becoming pretty critical with nearly 400 people quarantined every single day. So you say you, it hasn't affected your ability to respond to 911 calls, but are you having to, to triage other kinds of calls? For instance, um, lesser crimes, things that, you know, like vandalism. Are, are you having to not report and, and uh, stop crime uh, of a lesser nature? Not necessarily crime, but there are some calls that are not calls about crime, but they are all calls about quality of life issues, nuisance issues, things that people call the police for that they probably don't have to call the police for. Yes, we are prioritizing the non-emergency calls so that we can respond to all of the emergency calls. Uh, And so while we've moved a number of people around, we've worked on restaffing and uh, reallocating all of our resources to make sure each of the nine districts are adequately staffed and prepared to respond to any kind of emergency call. We've had to prioritize the non-emergency call so that we can deal with the emergencies. So according to a recent department um, data, Baltimore saw a net loss of 92 officers last year. Um, Why is that? Are you worried that that trend is gonna continue? Well, last year in 21 was a unique year. We had a, a large number of people who had uh, medical separations. They could not be, be a police officer ever again because of spinal injuries, all types of serious injuries. And there were a larger number of separations because of terminations or resignations in lieu of terminations. When you put those two together, that number made the attrition number much larger than in previous years. We don't think that's going to be the case this year, but 21 was an outlier year because of those two unique Uh, reasons. All right, Baltimore Police Commissioner Michael Harrison, thank you so much for your time. Glad you're feeling better, sir. Democrats hope to vote on a key rule change that will give them what they want now, but might they pay the price later? Stay with us. And our politics lead a deadline in the battle for election reform just days away. In 2021, 19 states passed a total of 34 laws that made it tougher to vote, according to the progressive Brennan Center For justice, that includes uh, tougher voter ID requirements, shorter windows for applying for mail-in ballots, increasing barriers for voters with disabilities. As CNN senior White House correspondent Phil Mattingly reports, President Biden is eyeing a tougher approach to passing legacy-making election reform legislation, despite two possible Democratic holdouts on changing the rules so that the bill can ultimately pass in a partisan vote. He's quite focused on uh, how uh, ensuring the American people understand what is at stake here. A White House sharpening its message. The president will forcefully advocate for protecting the most bedrock American rights, the right to vote uh, and have your voice counted in a free, fair and secure election that is not tainted, tainted, tainted by partisan manipulation. It launches its most aggressive push yet to unlock President Biden's agenda. Those who storm this Capitol. And those who instigated and incited, and those who called on them to do so, held a dagger at the throat of America, at American democracy. With critical priorities frozen in the U.S. Senate, Biden shifting directly to bringing the fight to Republicans, all as he pushes to secure two Democratic votes. 
everyone is going to have to take a hard look at where they want to be uh, at this moment in history as we're looking at efforts across the country to, uh, pre to prevent people from being able to exercise their fundamental rights. Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will travel to Georgia Tuesday, set to make the case for Democratic voting bills that expand voting options and implement sweeping federal changes to voting laws. All his Senate Democrats prepared to vote on both as soon as this week. But with unified GOP opposition. This is a takeover that Democrats have sought for multiple years using multiple different justifications. Only one real path forward, a change to Senate rules, one opposed by Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Being open to uh, a rules change that would uh, create a nuclear option, uh, it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult, it's, it's a heavy lift. Both also not on board yet with Biden's $1.75 trillion Build Back Better plan. I'm really not going to talk about Build Back Better anymore because I think I've been very clear on that. There is no negotiations going on at this time. Manchin's explosive decision to shut down those talks, leaving the bill in the same limbo as voting rights. At a moment, Biden's top allies on Capitol Hill are ramping up their own pressure campaign. Joe Manchin has all the cover he needs to now step away and do what we need done. And that is provide the 49th vote, and I hope uh, that um, the 50th vote will come along. And Jake, despite the public push this week from the president, private calls from former presidents Clinton and Obama, private calls from Oprah urging Joe Manchin to change his mind on the filibuster. Just a short while ago, he reiterated to our colleague Manu Raju that he has not changed his mind. It is still a heavy lift. And despite Democrats clearly moving in that direction yet to try and change the Senate rules, Manchin simply is not there right now, Jake. Phil Manningly at the White House, thanks so much. Joining us now, California Democratic Senator Alex Padilla. He previously served as California's Secretary of State, um, Senator Padilla, so this vote on a rules change coming up, um, how worried are you that any rule change could backfire when Republicans inevitably take control of the Senate again and then they use this precedent to pass a nationwide ban on abortion or nationwide concealed carry gun laws with only 51 votes? Yeah, uh, good to be back with you, Jake. And uh, look, I've been hearing that question since even before I joined the Senate last year. And uh, here's my take. Uh, I, I think it's worth the risk. If we're able to massage the rules of the Senate to advance uh, critical issues like voter protection and, and defending voting rights, things like an aggressive climate change agenda, things like labor protections, protecting equality, and so much more, uh, then I don't worry about the uh, losing the majority in the Senate. Uh, so I do think it's worth the risk, but let's be clear here. Uh, I think what Senator Manchin has made clear is not a wholesale change, but potentially, and it's a long shot, uh, a pathway for voting rights legislation only uh, to advance, which is so critical. You know, you had your uh, special this last Thursday on the anniversary of the insurrection, which was based on the big lie. So shoring up the right to vote and the integrity of our elections, uh, it's critical and it's urgent. There's no indication that either Senator Manchin or Senator Sinema are willing to, to change the filibuster rules on this. None. Zero. So I do have to wonder about the strategy of this, of Biden giving a big speech about it. Isn't he just setting up Democratic voters for disappointment, which might deflate turnout in November? 
uh, look, first and foremost, we got to fight for it. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're, uh, some of us are doing it very publicly, including President Biden tomorrow in Georgia. Uh, and of course, a lot of us are involved behind the scenes as well. Uh, and while Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema may not be there right now, you're absolutely right. That doesn't mean that we're not trying, that there's not active conversations happening each and every day. That's why we haven't been very public on what the specifics of a rule change might be. Uh, but I will I will share this. Uh, my, my my colleague from West Virginia, Senator Manchin, just like I, a former state secretary of state, he has shared with a number of our colleagues as as respectful as he's been to the filibuster in the past. That means a lot to him. He understands how important our fundamental right to vote is. And frankly, the Republican Party is nowhere near what it's been in the past. You know, the, the reauthorization of the Federal Voting Rights Act has been bipartisan each and every time until recent years. And to not get a Republican vote to just have a simple debate about it on the floor should tell uh, Senator Manchin a whole heck of a lot. You can't allow Republicans to obstruct progress in Washington, D.C., while Republican legislatures and Republican governors are decimating access to the ballot in state house after state house. So Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, he released a memo saying that there was record turnout in the 2020 election, which is true and that the Voting Rights Act is still intact. And then he then said this, quote, so it's appropriate to ask the question, what's going on here? I think this is an excuse to try to break the Senate. Why doesn't the Voting Rights Act go far enough? Look, that's not even a good try. Uh, you know, if, if he thinks, why are Democrats trying to uh, protect the right to vote at the federal level if we had record turnout in the last election, then why are, are Republican governors and legislatures making it harder for eligible Americans to register to vote, stay registered to vote, and cast their ballot in, in state after state. You can't have it both ways. And yes, we did have re a record turnout in the last election, but is it right to have people wait two, four, six, eight, ten hours in line to be able to exercise their right to vote? Of course not. So uh, the voter suppression practices that are in place around the country need to be undone. And that's what we're seeking to achieve through uh, the uh, uh, Freedom to Vote Act. Your fellow senator, Republican Mike Rounds, uh, said this on Sunday. Take a listen. While there were some irregularities, there were none of the irregularities which would have risen to the point where they would have changed the vote outcome in a single state. The election was fair, as fair as we've seen. Uh, we simply did not win the election as Republicans for the presidency. Senator Mitt Romney just tweeted uh, backing up uh, Senator Rounds after Trump uh, criticized Rounds and insulted him for making uh, the comment. Um, how concerned are you uh, about this big lie loyalty test impacting this year's midterm election? Look, good for Senator Rounds for standing up for the truth, because what he said is absolutely true. You know, this boogeyman of voter fraud, let's get the facts straight. Voter fraud is exceedingly rare across the country, which means our current protections are working. So when you have these changes uh, in state law that makes it harder for eligible people to vote, uh, it's a solution in search of a problem. So uh, uh, what we have in California, you mentioned my prior experience as, as Secretary of State, uh, multiple options for how to register to vote, all very secure, multiple options for how voters can cast their ballot, including vote by mail, also very secure. Every eligible voter in America deserves the same option because it comes down to what we all supposedly learned in high school 
uh, Jake. Uh, our democracy works best when as many eligible people get to participate. The better the turnout, the better the outcome of the election reflects the will of the people. Senator Alex Padilla from the great state of California, thanks so much. Appreciate your time, sir. It's only the second week of January, but the travel industry is already facing a plane load of problems. What do you need to know before you take a trip? Stay with us. In our money lead, taking a trip soon? Well, you might want to double check that refund policy. As the Omicron variant takes off, an increasing number of American travelers have been grounded since Christmas. More than 30,000 U.S. flights have been canceled. Norwegian Cruise Line has docked eight of its ships, with Royal Caribbean powering down four others. CNN's Pete Montin joins us now. Pete, how much of a hit is this a variant, the Omicron variant for the travel industry. Well, Jake, that just shows how quickly things can change in the travel space in this new Omicron era. This is what's happening for airlines. Not only have they been hit with back-to-back winter storms of last week, but also huge numbers of employees are calling out sick because they've been either exposed to or infected with coronavirus. These are the latest numbers from FlightAware. Airlines canceled 5,300 flights nationwide between Friday and Sunday over the weekend. Another 800 cancellations today. It seems that these numbers are tapering off a little bit, but airline experts caution us this is a really difficult thing to forecast when it comes to these crew callouts. Southwest Airlines canceled about one in every five of its flights over the weekend. And in a new statement, it says, our operation has seen steady improvement on Monday as we continue recovering from staffing challenges and severe weather that impacted several of our largest bases of operation over the past week. Now, as these airline cancellations are going up, these cruise line cancellations, sorry, cruise line cancellations are going up as airline cancellations are going down a little bit. But a dozen cruise ships have been docked over the last week at major cruise lines. Royal Caribbean just docked four of its ships. It says out of an abundance of caution. That cruise line requires that passengers be fully vaccinated. But just last week, one of its ships had to turn back to Hong Kong because of a COVID scare on board. Remember that the CDC just two weeks ago advised Americans not to go on cruises regardless of their vaccination status, Jake. So are most airlines, cruise lines, et cetera, refunding travelers if they have to cancel uh, trips, uh, or should everybody be just automatically buying traveler's insurance whenever they buy a ticket? What's so interesting here, Jake, is that travel insurance companies say they have seen inquiries go up over the last few weeks. These cruise lines are offering refunds to passengers, although they say it may take as long as 45 days for folks to get their money back just because of the sheer volume of calls that they're getting right now. Airlines may default to offering you a credit, a bit of sleight of hand on their part, although the DOT regulations, federal regulations state that if your flight is canceled, you are owed a full refund if you do not elect to fly again. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. Fires, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, just some of the natural disasters in recent years that come with an increasingly steep price to pay. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, staggering new proof that weather and climate disasters are wreaking unprecedented havoc across the country. Hurricanes, out-of-season tornadoes, nonstop wildfires. Last year, the U.S. was battered by 20 weather events, each one causing at least a billion dollars worth of damage. That's not even a record. But as CNN's Renee Marsh reports for us now, the total price tag of 2021's weather damage was far higher than in previous years in both dollars and in human lives. Holy, 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 
From a rare winter firestorm and historic drought to devastating hurricanes, an unusual late-season tornado outbreak, and unprecedented snow and ice. The full range of billion-dollar weather disasters seen across the nation in the past 12 months is now quantified in a newly released climate report. 2021 was deadlier than 2020 and one of the most expensive years for billion-dollar weather disasters. That's according to the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. Nearly 700 people died in 20 separate billion-dollar disasters. That's more than double 2020's deaths. The staggering economic toll totaled $145 billion. The new data crystallizes the human and financial impact of climate change now. It's an alarm bell, and it should point out why we should have taken action years ago. But now, absolutely, we have to do this. The new report only captures the most costly disasters, which is only about 80 percent of the total economic loss. Hurricane Ida, a deadly Category 4 storm that slammed Louisiana and triggered tornadoes and flooding as far north as New York City, was the most expensive, costing the U.S. $75 billion. The winter storm that froze the Deep South, including Texas last February, was the second costliest at $24 billion. And the western wildfires cost the U.S. 10 billion. We cannot adapt to runaway climate change. That's why we have to sharply curtail our heat trapping emissions. In 10 years, these disasters have cost the United States just over a trillion dollars. To put this in perspective, that's double the cost of the currently stalled climate legislation. The climate provisions in the bill aim to slash greenhouse gases by half of 2005 levels. And if the Build Back Better bill passes, those are all tools to make sure that we are truly leveraging our dollars and our and our taxpayer dollars to have more communities be safer. FEMA, the Federal Disaster Response Agency, is now doubling down on helping communities better prepare on the front end, issuing grants for more weather-resistant infrastructure. But climate change, it's also spawning unusual weather phenomenon and weather whiplash that's difficult to predict and prepare for. Like this rare event in Colorado late last month, flames fueled by warmer temperatures, drought conditions and 100 mile per hour winds were smothered less than 24 hours later by several inches of snow. Scientists say if we don't cut emissions, the root cause of climate change, we're facing a losing battle. Let's make the investments ahead of time so we're not just picking up the pieces. And Jake, the other part of the devastating impact of climate change that the United States is experiencing is this compounding impact of the frequency of these climate events. In the 1980s, these sort of events happened every 82 days. Now we're talking about every 18 days, Jake. Renee Marsh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. With me to discuss further, CNN Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir. Bill, I want to start by getting your reaction to Renee's reporting about the exploding costs of these severe weather events. It's, it's staggering, Jake. We knew it would be bad. We didn't know it would be $50 billion more bad. We didn't know it would be twice the number of human lives lost. And imagine all of those just shattered uh, over these events. But sadly, this is just the beginning of these bills becoming due. And, and the weather disaster events, they're growing costly or more frequent. But the forces and the, and the forces causing them are not improving. They're, they're getting worse. There's this new analysis by European experts showing that the last seven years have been the warmest on record for the planet. Um, we've never been in a more precarious climate position, it seems. No, not at all. Not at all. And not in human history. 
not in all of history has it happened this suddenly. We are the volcano. We are the force that's changing this. Uh, and yes, Copernicus is sort of the EU's version of NOAA. They rank 2021 as number five, warmest of all time. And La Nina, the cooling effects of the Pacific, kept those numbers down. It probably kept it out of the top one or two spots. NOAA is expected to put it uh, at about number four. Uh, but what's more alarming is that now land is heating up faster than the oceans. For so long, the oceans absorbed so much heat, they sort of hid the severity of this. And that's now tipping, tipping over. But what's more troubling to think about is what if these are the, the coldest seven years for the rest of our lives? Yeah. And another new report shows that U.S. greenhouse gas emissions have surged back up. Obviously, there was a dip during the pandemic. What what might that mean for President Biden's overarching climate goal to slash U.S. emissions by the end of the decade? It makes it so, so, so much harder. Uh, you know, he wants to, to have emissions of the planet cooking pollution uh, by the end of this decade, just in eight years or so from 2005 levels. With the Build Back Better plan, he'll only get about 43 percent of the way uh, there. But last year, the curve went up instead of down. It went up 6%. We knew that would be sort of a, a vengeance economy as factories roared back to life, as economies uh, roared back to life. What we didn't anticipate is that the United States, for the first time since 2014, would burn more coal than the year before. Uh, and that's because there is no policy backstop. There is nothing to stop a utility uh, from cutting costs when natural gas prices go up to just revert to the dirtiest fuel of all and, and, and burn it with, with a vengeance there. Uh, the Build Back Better plan, though, has been chipped away at so much. It's $555 billion worth of carrots with, with not a lot of sticks uh, to force it through. Now, Joe Manchin said last week that uh, the climate provisions there are, are the one thing he and others can agree on the most. Uh, whether or not the White House breaks that off and tries to do a separate climate package or tries to, you know, do it all together remains to be seen right now. But the bottom line is the more those emissions reports keep going up, the, the harrowing price tag that we saw in Renee Marsh's piece is only going to follow. All right, Bill Weir, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, will Chicago schools be closed for yet another day as the city and teachers union struggle to reach a deal? That's next with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 